So, yeah, so this will be about moral psychology. There will be some philosophy, uh, but a uh, great deal of it will, will really be, uh, I don't like to call it, I do experimental philosophy. I think it is uh, quite a lot of what I'll say is philosophically or ethically informed psychology, uh, but it has, I think, quite general interest for ethics that we will see. So, and I think probably all of you, many of you will know, since roughly the year 2000, there's been this explosion of research uh, on the cognitive science of psychology and neuroscience of ethics. Um, I hope you'll agree it's a very welcome development, but what's less obviously welcome is the extent to which a lot of this research has focused pretty obsessively um, and in, in many ways, a very puzzling way on these trolley dilemmas and variations of them. So that's by far the most dominant experimental paradigm in this whole body of work. Uh, I think at this point there will be probably hundreds of studies using these dilemmas, uh, with new ones coming pretty much every week. I'll get invited on a monthly basis to review. Uh, to referee those kind of uh, studies. So there's a huge, huge literature, a mountain of literature growing just using these dilemmas. And it's kind of a bit puzzling, as I said, because if you kind of, your aim is to understand the building blocks of, the psychological building blocks of human morality, then it's a strange place to start. It's kind of very far-fetched philosophical uh, examples that are incredibly specific. One reason why there is this almost obsessive focus uh, on these dilemmas. It's kind of sociological, really. Uh, one of the biggest early papers in this field was this paper by Joshua Green and his colleague that came out in 2001. Uh, pretty much the first neuroimaging studies uh, in this area. I'm sorry of how it came to be the first, which is a bit interesting, uh, that I won't go into. Uh, but it was kind of the first big thing came out in the journal Science, the, biggest place you, you can publish in as a scientist, um, reported all these exciting uh, findings with philosophical relevance. Uh, and what happened, you know, people started to copy green and then everybody was doing it, so everybody was doing what everybody was doing and it became the dominant paradigm. Uh, and green did report some really exciting and striking findings, uh, both in that first neuroimaging study and in a range of uh, very influential subsequent studies. Um, by the way, I didn't look it up today, but if you look up on Google Scholar how many citations that initial study had, it's I think in the thousands, it's, it's one of the most widely uh, cited papers in recent psychology, incredibly influential paper. So, so what did Green find? I think I'll go through this fairly quickly, and I think many of you will know some of this stuff, but I do need to cover it. Um, to, to uh, motivate some of what will follow. So he claimed to find that when, uh, by, by the way, I'm, I'm assuming some familiarity with the trolley, but that with the details are not terribly important, but <coughs> would you like me to quickly go over it, or shall we spare that time and not bore you with that thing once more? Uh, so he, he claimed to find that, or reported finding that when people in those footbridge-style dilemmas where you need to directly push someone, you know, fat man, to save five others. Uh, 
uh, and thereby sacrificing him to save five others. But what's going on when people say no, that these emotional areas of the brain light up, while by contrast, when they judge that it's okay to push the fat man, a similar kind of judgments, uh, a different kind of set of processes gears into, uh, kicks into play, that's more deliberative, involve uh, actual reasoning. So, uh, and on that basis, he came up with this overall model of moral psychology, which says that when we make these judgments that are deontological, we're really following kind of intuitive, immediate gut reactions, very emotional responses that are not very reasoned, uh, while when we engaged, uh, while we arrive at this contrary utilitarian conclusion, what's going on is a unique kind of uh, conscious moral reasoning and deliberation. <coughs> Uh, it's quite a pretty exciting uh, picture, uh, and, and, and has not stopped there, it's already pretty exciting, it's just a science, but he has made some pretty grand claims about the significance of his findings. Um, here's a quote from an early paper in Neuron, where he claimed that this whole historical controversy between people like Mill and Kant really can be traced back to this tension between these two uh, neural subsystems. Uh, both Green and people like Peter Singer have said, have argued that when we look at these findings and see this rather unflattering uh, picture of the sources of deontology and this much more flattering, supposedly, picture of uh, where utilitarianism comes from, uh, then this should give us strong reasons to reject deontology. Uh, Green, someplace, call it a kind of Kind of confabulation, it's just emotions, gut reactions, and the whole Kantian stories are just uh, uh, irrelevant for explaining what's really driving these judgments. Uh, Green, as you may know, <coughs> recently, just a couple of years ago, came out with this popular book that received a lot of attention, where Fowler developed these claims uh, and defends a kind of utilitarianism, uh, again, on the basis of, of this empirical research. Now, I've spent a fair amount of time in past work criticizing Green, both his empirical claims and his philosophical arguments, um, so both on purely conceptual ground, but also uh, some, some empirical work, work we've done. I won't go into the details, but this, for example, is one neuroimaging study we did where we found that uh, the same kind of brain error that light up when people uh, judge that it's okay to push the fat man in Footbridge style case, kind of counterintuitive to the time judgment, are very similar to the kind of brain error that you get when you make a counterintuitive deontological judgment, like refusing to lie to prevent a great harm to someone. Uh, we also did uh, pharmacological studies where we manipulated people's, the gut, removed the gut uh, feeling component of emotion and got result, effects that are contrary to what green theory predicts and many other things. I won't go into uh, in detail. I'm happy to discuss them in Q&A. Uh, but what, what I want to focus on in this talk is not so much Green's own theory and uh, the details of his empirical claims, but some more general assumption that have shaped a lot of uh, this work in moral psychology, at least in its most ambitious form. There's certainly animate Green's work, but you'll find some of that uh, in quite a lot of work in that field. Uh, and to some extent also in other works in experimental philosophy, other areas of moral psychology, but I won't directly apply what I say there, but uh, I'll be happy to uh, draw the lines uh, in discussion if, if that's of interest. 
Uh, so the first assumption is that we can take these concepts and distinctions from ethical theory, from philosophy, and just directly apply them to the everyday moral psychology of ordinary folk. Uh, so we take stuff from ethics, we uh, apply that to ordinary psychology, and this way we, that's the second assumption, we can uncover the psychological roots of these ethical theories, and even more ambitiously, as in Green's work, uh, we can use those findings to debunk or vindicate those theories. And unsurprisingly, a lot of, including some of my own work, uh, a lot of people have kind of focused on these two claims and criticized them. I want to actually largely focus on this first claim, which is usually just taken for granted, uh, and it's shared even by people in neuroscience and moral psychology that don't kind of try to go for this grand uh, philosophical claim that, Ge that Green calls for. Uh, so very widely uh, held assumption in this whole area. So I'll, I'll say mostly, speak mostly to that issue, but towards then I'll also say something a bit more speculative about uh, whether that kind of research can tell us about the psychological roots of ethical theories and maybe even something about the normative implication of that if time permits, which it is not. So, so how does that assumption work? Uh, so people essentially assume that's selling pretty much all of Green's work, but said a lot of work in that area. You take these dilemmas, you give them to ordinary people, you study the psychological, neural, and other processes uh, that take place when people reach, uh, ju make judgment about these cases. And on that basis, you can draw general claims about things like utilitarian decision-making or utilitarian judgment. Uh, and that's supposed to tell you something about the sources of a utilitarian ethical theory. Um, so it's an assumption that certainly animates Green's work. Uh, without that assumption, none of that would get off the ground. But lots of other people would say, don't make his ambitious philosophical claims share that assumption. So that's a very influential paper uh, that was published in Nature, showing that, supposedly showing people with frontal brain damage, like Phineas Gage had, have a utilitarian bias. Uh, and tons and tons of papers, these are just a selection, I could have easily given you a list of 40 or 50, uh, reporting all kinds of factors and processes that are associated with deontological utilitarian moral judgment and, and decision making. Uh, upper class participants are more utilitarian, uh, subject conform to deontological but not consequentialist majorities. They're drunk utilitarian, you drink alcohol, you're more utilitarian. That one got quite a bit of attention in the press, which should also kind of ring a bit of alarm bells here. Um, I mean, when people get drunk, they don't kind of go home and give all the money to Oxfam, so what's going on here? What does it mean that being drunk makes you more utilitarian? Uh, something that kind of really should give you pause, and it's particularly puzzling, is a whole range of evidence tying uh, those supposedly utilitarian judgments in trolling dilemmas being willing, more willing to push the fat man and all kind of antisocial traits like psychopathy. Uh, quite a lot of studies. Um, some of them involve actual psychopaths in prisons, so properly diet, properly uh, people meet a, a, a very stringent psychiatric conditions for being a psychopath. Uh, but quite a bit of them, including our work, um, so I, I do need to caution you, so you don't need to misinterpret what I said. Quite a lot of that work is uh, with ordinary people, uh, including some people in this room, so are not psychopaths, uh, or even close to being psychopaths, but there are people who own a measure of psychopathy, let's suppose if that's being a psychopath, then that's being as far as possible from psychopathy, 
So they're a bit, uh, a bit farther up the scale. Uh, people are a bit less emotional, <clears throat> don't find violence too disturbing, uh, a bit insensitive uh, to, to uh, violence or things like that. Uh, but pretty ordinary people, not, not psychopaths by any People are higher on that level, so it's kind of important to, to emphasize. Now, that kind of finding fits a whole, again, a whole growing body of data that um, is all pointing in the same direction. So the kind of traits that are associated with uh, being more willing to push the fat man in those dilemmas uh, include having lower empathy, uh, higher level of testosterone, lower emotional intelligence, so weaker physiological reaction to seeing one person hurt another, all those kinds of things. We looked at that at uh, the neural level in another study. I won't go into the detail, but at the end of the day, the neuroscience is not actually that important in this area, but I'm happy to say more later if you're interested. Uh, so that one, mm -hmm. that kind of stuff also got a lot of attention in the press, as I think I said. Uh, here's a bit from The Economist. Um, um, very bad inference, uh, say, uh, goodness has nothing to do with it, utilitarians are not nice people, so, because people who are higher on psychopathy tend to uh, make more of this judgment, uh, they conclude from that that uh, utilitarians are maybe a bit like psychopaths. Um, so, so that's the wrong inference to take from, from that body of finding. So, if it turns out that the kind of most consistent character trait that is associated with uh, judging that these supposedly utilitarian judgment, making this utilitarian the kind of character trait that is supposed to think that it's okay to push the fat man, uh, tend to be this kind of incredibly antisocial trait to utilitarian. So psychopaths are clearly not great utilitarians, they're concerned for their own good, not for the greater good, they're uh, obviously famously egoist. Uh, the conclusion to make from that is not that utilitarians are antisocial, but that these kind of dilemmas are not a very good measure of whether anyone is a utilitarian. So that's, uh, that's all kind of empirical suggestions. <coughs> but you can reach uh, pretty much the same conclusions on more conceptual grounds if you just look more closely at these dilemmas and, and what they actually measure or supposed to measure. Uh, the important point, kind of in the background, is that the fact that some dilemmas, when used in the context of philosophy, are used to mark a certain contrast, in this case between uh, utilitarianism and deontology. Um, some of you may even know that these dilemmas were not even designed to mark that contrast. Uh, doesn't mean that when you give them to ordinary folk, that it automatically marks the same contrast. It's a very big leap that is being made here. Uh, so why do people assume that when you think that it's okay to push the fat man, you're making you to the time judgment? Well, it involves giving in this context of a very unusual emergency that you're kind of present in, more way to saving life than some potential deontological constraint, and involve seeing more lives is more and better than fewer lives. Um, some people in there can see that this is a utilitarian idea. Uh, Green said that in a recent paper, and he's not really been reading my criticism or understanding. He said, the utilitarian idea of thinking that more lives is more important than fewer lives. Uh, some people even say it's a utilitarian cost-benefit analysis is involved in making those kind of judgments. These are really just pedestrian moves in, in common sense morality. Um, thinking that 
five saving five lives is better than uh, saving one. It's not anything especially utilitarian. It's ordinary morality, really. Uh, utilitarian involves some quite a bit more distinctive idea than that. Uh, so roughly the idea that we are acquired to maximize well-being from a maximally impartial point of view, and that this is the whole of morality. Obviously, there's a lot of uh, detail one could spell out if one wanted to. Uh, are these, any of these ideas really involved in these utilitarian responses to trolley dilemmas? Well, I don't actually think so. Uh, and there's a lot of empirical evidence that supports that. So when you look at people who make these supposedly utilitarian judgments, I'm just going to say utilitarian judgment to, to simplify that I, in the paper, some of the papers we've written, we use kind of quotation marks around that. Uh, so when you give them the option, they don't think it's required to push the fat, and they think it's okay if you, it's so inclined, but it's, it's permissible, but very, very few people actually think it's required. Usually people endorse this kind of harm only when they think there's enough, um, uh, enough uh, benefit, so very few, if any, would push one to save two, Many more would push one to say 50, so it's extremely sensitive to the amount of benefit you get. Very few people consistently go for the utilitarian option. They will occasionally choose for, in different dilemmas, the utilitarian option, some more than others, but almost no one consistently goes and says, all of them give some way to the ontological constraint on the other side. Uh, people res respond to these dilemmas in an incredibly partial way, so if it's about saving your family. They'll be more happy to push the fat man. If it's your fat man is your family member, they're incredibly reluctant to think that that's okay. Uh, they tend to report feeling guilty after making those judgments. It's not a morally neutral thing for them. Uh, and if you give them the chance, they will tell you that both options are somewhat wrong. I don't think that there's one clearly right answer in those kind of dilemmas. Okay, so all kinds of reasons for doubting that when we give ordinary people those trolley dilemmas, we're really doing um, the kind of thing in most of the researchers in this area, assuming that we are measuring this thing utilitarian judgment or utilitarian decision making or utilitarian bias. Um, I'll now kind of review some uh, just bits of some empirical work we've done to kind of investigate this question more directly. Um, briefly summarize some, some studies we reported in this paper from a couple of years ago in cognition. Uh, so we essentially in that paper <coughs> took these trolley dilemmas and we came up with a range of measures that might be indicators of the kind of more ambitious utilitarian concern for the greater good. So different kinds of measures, I'll review some of them. Um, different kinds of way of looking whether people who make those utilitarian judgments are really uh, ref those judgments reflect or express that kind of general impartial concern. So, for example, people in those studies would be given trolley dilemmas, but also ask whether they would, what kind of, how much money they would give to help distant strangers in developing countries. Sometimes it's a hypothetical donation, sometimes uh, a small actual donation. The extent to which they identify with the whole of humanity as opposed to uh, themselves or very nearby people or maybe. Uh, larger groups, uh, the extent to which they endorse egoist views like Ayn Rand's. Um, here, kind of pretty much replicating all some of these findings I reported, 
people who made those utilitarian judgments were incredibly, uh, it was very highly correlated with psychopathy, but also with endorsing rational egoism, uh, was negatively correlated with uh, identifying with the whole of humanity, which you would imagine is a uh, kind of thing you'd expect a utilitarian to uh, endorse, uh, and also negatively correlated with how much money they were willing to give to this, whether hypothetical, hypothetical or actual charity. So kind of thing if you, you're getting, uh, maybe kind of already occurred to you, that when people are looking at uh, the brains or the psychological processes involved in uh, judging that it's okay to push the fat man, they think they are learning something about the sources of utilitarianism. To a very large extent, they're actually studying the psychology of these egoists like Ayn Rand kind of view, that is in many ways diametrically opposed to a genuine utilitarian outlook. That's already a uh, cause for some worry. Um, is another study we did, we uh, thought what, what kind of moral, concrete moral views would a genuine utilitarian hold? Uh, we construct a kind of questionnaire uh, about concerns for animal welfare or about the good of future generations and climate change, the kind of sacrifices you're willing to make, uh, your willingness to care about distant strangers as opposed to nearby one. Uh, and again, so, so these are the kind of views you'd expect most utilitarians to hold, for example, strong tweet meat, uh, generally against using animals in painful experiments, caring about future generation, and especially thinking we have these obligations uh, to poor people in developing countries. Uh, but when you look at what trolley case uh, utilitarians hold or believe, uh, as you might expect, are not particularly worried about painful experiments, uh, down to animals, don't particularly uh, care about distant strangers and helping them uh, or future generations. Uh, one kind of thing that I want to highlight that's kind of important, you might think, well, down this, take all these population, and some of them are the psychopaths, they have all these kind of tendencies, and that group is pushing the results in a certain direction. Uh, so, so that's in a way true because those kind of uh, people a bit less emotional, more uh, receptive to harm, they might be the ones who think that it's fine to uh, <clears throat> do all sorts of painful stuff to animals, but even if you control for that component, you get that there's no relation whatsoever between how disposed you are to be willing to push the fat man and whether you would care about all these other things to do with the greater good. There's no relation whatsoever between the two. Uh, you may not particularly nasty, let's say, uh, in these other contexts, but there's just no relation, uh, even when you control for this antisocial component. It's not all driven by that. Okay. Uh, I won't go into this, but this is a further study we did, so you might worry, well, some people might uh, not believe that giving to charity will help, will lead to the best outcome, all of these beliefs of Singer rely on all kind of empirical claims that maybe some people don't share, so maybe they are utilitarian with other empirical beliefs. So we also set a, kind of, uh, a set of dilemmas or vignettes with moral decisions to make where this was controlled very clearly. Um, and again, we got the same result that you can control for that possible empirical uh, assumption that people might have. There's no relation whatsoever between the extent to which you're willing to uh, uh, 
push the fat man in those trolley dilemmas and extend to which you care or judge that it matters or that we have reasons or duties or whatever you want uh, to help distant strangers and all these other things. Uh, that are plausible indicators of general concern or impartial concern for the greater good that is classically associated with a utilitarian output. Uh, Green actually has some paper under review. Uh, I won't go into the details about it. Um, which is supposed to rebut our criticism. I won't go into the details because it's not published yet, but I'll just tell you that from what I understand, uh, it essentially replicated all of these findings uh, in an even more rigorous way. Uh, so empirically, everything I, I just report to you is fairly robust, I think. He has some uh, words about interpretation, uh, which we, I'm happy to, to go into later. So, so what, what kind of the, the interim conclusion Huge amount of work in this field, uh, a great deal of it really focusing on these dilemmas that are assumed to be a way of measuring something called utilitarian judgment or decision making. And I hope to have persuaded you that it's a very uh, non obvious assumption that that's what is being done here, except they were actually studying the very opposite of what we're supposed to be studying. So uh, it's a bit worrying. Uh, in a way, there is this problem is not super surprising when you think of it. Because uh, if you, you think about all the implications that utilitarianism has that are in some way in conflict with common sense or with common intuitions, uh, the stuff about trolley dilemmas is just one out of very many such implications, and not clearly the most central one. As I said before, these trolley dilemmas are not even developed to uh, presented conscious between the ontology and utilitarianism, they were developed as part of an investigation into the ontology. Uh, but there are many other things, including whether they're willing to lie for the greater good, or whether uh, utilitarianism is too demanding, or whether it uh, undermines integrity. And you could go and uh, cover very many cases that have been discussed in the philosophical literature. But all of this literature, uh, in the psychology, assume that if you just focus on trolley dilemma, we can learn about this general thing uh, to do with utilitarianism. Very odd assumption. Um, if you want a metaphor, uh, not, not sure it's appropriate on Rosh Hashanah, but um, <laughs> so it's a bit like if you um, look at people who judge that it's, uh, we shouldn't eat pork, uh, and you call that Jewish judgment, and you learn about Jewish psychology uh, on that basis, that's pretty much what's being done in the, uh, this small psychology literature. Of course, for many reasons, not to eat pork, you may be vegetarian or Muslim, or just you don't like the taste, and many Jews uh, eat pork, so it's neither necessary nor sufficient for being Jewish. So it's a very weird extrapolation uh, that is being made in this literature. So one thing that's kind of coming out of, especially this last study I, I reviewed, there may be that there's two things going on here. One is a kind of a kind of psychological factors that dispose people to uh, look at harm or what we call instrumental harm, so sacrificing one for a greater number in a more permissive way, it's kind of less empathic, more unemotional, uh, at the extreme antisocial tendency. Uh, and then there's the stuff to do with uh, caring about the greater good or being uh, more impartial. And, 
thinking that we have duties to distant strangers. Um, and these might be related in different ways to, to um, 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 it might be related in different ways to some pretty basic psychological features. So uh, the kind of thing that disposes you, uh, this kind of unemotionality that disposes you to think it's fine to uh, push the fat man to say five, uh, may also dispose you against caring about distant strangers and vice versa. Kind of people who uh, care more about distant strangers may have higher emp empathy or emotional response, uh, but that may also dispose them to be uh, less willing to think that it's okay to sacrifice one to save five. Here's a kind of uh, bit of convergent evidence from a quite interesting study that came out a couple of years ago. This study looked at people who are extreme altruists. So these people are people who uh, donate their kidney to complete strangers. Um, so kind of make very extreme self-sacrifice. The kind of people that, uh, if you look at the writings of Peter Singer, he often mentioned them as kind of impressive examples of what a utility child would, uh, would do. Um, so, so that study looked at their brains and also psychology and found that um, they have all kinds of features, both at the neural level and in terms of especially the way they respond to uh, fearful expressions that are exactly the opposite of the psychological profile of psychopaths. Um, so if you want a kind of continuum uh, of emotionality, they also tend to be more empathically uh, responsive. So there's a kind of continuum of psychological features that are very extreme, the kind of people who would make those kind of extreme sacrifices, uh, and at the very other end, the kind of psychopaths who uh, might also think it's fine uh, to sacrifice a stranger, sacrifice a person to save a greater number. So those two bits of utilitarianism kind of seem to be associated with opposing psychological tendencies. Um, okay, so, so, so far that, that, that has been um, all critical, um, except could go into some of the greater, in some to, to go into greater detail in, into sound criticism, both conceptual and empirical. Uh, in the rest of the talk, um, I'd like to present kind of alternative approach that we've developed and also report some initial findings using that approach. So a better way to study uh, what we call proto-utilitarian tendencies in ordinary. So the thought was, let's not just focus on trolley dilemmas or on this idea of sacrificing um, someone to to save a larger number, but look at the whole range of ways in which utilitarianism might be a distinctive moral view, uh, without assuming a priority that any one of them is particularly important. Uh, so we've developed something called the Oxford Utilitarianism Scale. Uh, this, uh, I should kind of emphasize, something still unpublished, but it's a very, I think, or hope, uh, last kind of uh, cycle of revisions for a very good uh, psychology journal, so it's fairly robust, but it's not uh, the kind of thing that has been out there for a while and replicated. So I don't want to do what Green has done and over speculate on the basis of uh, what will turn out to be shaky uh, empirical results. So I, I'm putting that qualifier uh, right away. Um, but I will be making some speculative claim towards the end, I think, that based on quite robust empirical evidence, but one that will require further. Information and, and replication. 
So here's what we did. Uh, so, so first we we decided not to uh, to ditch this whole language of talking about utilitarian judgment and decision making when applied to ordinary people, and instead of measuring the degree to which a moral outlook of an ordinary person might resemble the, uh, at a distance uh, from a, a classical utilitarian outlook. So we define this notion of something being more or less utilitarian. It's partly arbitrary decision, I think, uh, in a way that makes intuitive sense. Um, it's not a concept that philosophers have kind of refined. Um, so at the very far end, we want to have people like Peter Singer or Bentham, maybe Neil will be a bit less utilitarian, a bit softer, maybe he'll have you know, Rod Hooker and Shelley Cable and so on, and all the way to uh, extreme ontological views of people like Elizabeth Anscombe uh, or Immanuel Kant. So that, the thought is that uh, the more you move away from the classical view, you endorse greater forms of partiality to self and to others, uh, and you accept more and stronger ontological constraint on the maximization of the good. Um, and this can take different forms. You can uh, be more selfish, uh, or you can be more concerned about your in-group, or you can accept very many deontological rules that are quite weak, or you can accept a few of them, like maybe libertarians, that are incredibly strong. There are different ways of being less utilitarian, but the thought is that the more you move in this direction, you're converging on a certain kind of classical uh, form of utility. So how did we measure that kind of axis? Um, so we essentially constructed a very long list of all kind of items that we thought, uh, based on empirical literature and philosophical literature, uh, distinguish utilitarian and non-utilitarian views in some distinctive way, covering a very wide range of things including things like harming people or sacrificing them to save others, including self-sacrifice, including prohibitions on lying or justice or fairness, all kind of constraints, all kind of uh, things based on classical examples from the literature and so forth. And then we gave them to this uh, panel of experts, including some pretty you know, knowledgeable people like Peter Singer or Shelley Kagan and John Moon and a few others, all professional philosophers, which less famous, I won't mention them. Um, and they kind of went through that and kind of told us, gave us comments and correction and also to what extent they thought that this stuff was a good tool to distinguish utilitarian and non-utilitarian views in the sense we've defined. Um, and then we did a fairly large scale uh, study using uh, a thousand uh, US people, non-philosophers, just ordinary people out there, uh, and then we applied to that this uh, very powerful statistical method called factor analysis, uh, and then we had a slightly smaller study to uh, confirm that those results. I won't go into the details of the statistics, but essentially that uh, statistical method looks for factors in the variance of the people's responses to these 77 items and identify the kind of clusters uh, that go together in some robust way. And we got uh, these two dimensional, two factors that dominated the variance, um, and the scale is essentially based on that. So these are the items of the scale. Uh, and they kind of divide into these two factors, not perfectly, but fairly, fairly nicely. Um, much to our surprise, to be honest, because it very, very neatly fits some of the stuff we did in this previous study. But on the one hand, you have things to do with what we call impartial beneficence. So 
willingness to sacrifice in a way that's impartial, making even significant self-sacrifice uh, to help even distant others. And the other factor was uh, something we call instrumental harm, so ways of uh, thinking it's justified uh, to harm someone in order to lead to some better outcome. So the kind of thing that is measured, for example, by Trotsky. We actually had a third factor that looked at that um, related to the extent to which people accept or endorse a traditional absolutist morality, we think there are rules that can never be broken, things like that. But that wasn't statistically robust enough, we thought, to include in the final scale. In a way, that's not surprising because that kind of factor really re reflects um, the extent to which you uh, fall within a secular, uh, I'd say, progressive morality. Within that, you're still at some distance from each other trying to right? So in a way, not surprising it didn't end up as robust as these other two factors. So we were not too reluctant to give it up. Uh, so we, we call this kind of the two-dimension two factor of, uh, two-dimension model of ordinary utilitarian decision-making. So the thought is that these two variables um, just so that these two things are um, essentially uh, statistically independent. Right, so the two completely different psychological factors that explain the variance in that population. Um, and the thought is that um, you can be high on one but low on the other and vice versa. So maybe some people might be very high on partial beneficence, maybe a kind of idea of Christian love might point you in that direction, maybe some kind of Buddhist uh, way of thinking about ethics. Uh, but you might still reject this idea of harming people uh, to prevent greater, to lead to some better outcome. While some people might have no problem with that, maybe some libertarian actually, uh, these utilitarian judgment in trolley dilemmas are associated with being more libertarian, uh, or even egoist people. But if you are hiring them uh, on both of them, you're moving uh, quite nicely in the direction of the kind of classical utilitarian view. Um, so these are two separate dimensions. Put together, they make you kind of fully utilitarian, but they're really separate, uh, and they're psychologically separate, uh, which is the important point. So, just to illustrate that, so we looked at all kind of um, quite basic or standard psychological measures, and these two things really have different psychological profiles. So they both, by the way, very nicely correlate with the state, the, the degree to which people endorse a statement of explicit an explicit statement of utilitarian view. So kind of uh, shortish paragraph describe broadly what a utilitarian view and to what extent do they agree with it. Uh, people who are high on impartial beneficence tend to agree with that more. People who are high on instrumental harm tend to agree with that more. But these two views are still quite independent in, in the ordinary population. Uh, so as you might expect, instrumental harm is associated with greater psychopathy but not impartial beneficence. Um, associated with less empathic concern, but partial beneficence with higher empathic concern. Uh, people high on that, more inclined to donate, uh, to help people uh, in uh, distant countries, or to care about future generations in the environment. Uh, interestingly, people who are high on partial beneficence were also more religious. Uh, while people were high on instrumental harm and more economically conservative in the American sense. None of them, by the way, were associated with 
uh, a construct called needs for cognition. So it's a construct that measures the degree to which you are inclined to engage or to enjoy uh, effortful reflection. So the kind of thing that uh, Green talks about when he thinks that utilitarian judgment is associated with these great deliberative uh, uh, processes. So a tendency to do those kind of things was associated with neither of them. So you have all these broadly emotional, affective tendencies like uh, empathic concern or in the other direction, psychopathy, but nothing particularly cognitive that was doing the work. Now, it's a negative result. It's only one measure, so you don't want to over uh, overstate the uh, um, over-interpret the results, but broadly it sounds like what's driving people to be high or low on this thing are, are broadly effective factors rather than anything kind of rational or cognitive. Okay. Uh, by the way, um, Democrats were higher on this and Republicans were higher on that. That's of interest. Um, so, We wanted to see, if, because so that, that's how things turn out with the ordinary folks, so to speak. But we also wanted to see whether that scale to kind of validate it by looking at how uh, professional law philosophers would uh, rank on it, whether it you know, um, would fit the kind of results you'd expect if it's really measuring how far someone is from you to the trial view. Because if it turns out, if when you give it to the philosophers, it all comes out completely wrong, uh, that would obviously raise some question about whether it's really measuring the thing we're trying to measure. Uh, so we did this further little study uh, where we recruited 81 more philosophers, included about half, uh, less than half were graduate students and the rest were uh, postdocs to kind of established professors. Uh, and the thing we got that the more they said they are utilitarian, the degree to which they endorse utilitarian was very strongly correlated both with the overall score and both the scores on both of these measures, <coughs> instrumental harm and impartial uh, beneficence. Um, the interesting thing is this really, um, it's really not surprising, but it, it is still striking that, as I said, in the ordinary population, the association between these two variables is very, very low, uh, but when you get to uh, professional philosophers, it jumps to a much, much higher degree. I'll show you an illustration. So these are kind of views that these people endorse, and this is the degree in which they are high on instrumental harm and on impartial beneficence. You see that um, they endorse active you are pretty high on all of that. You see this all go together, you see, uh, quite nicely. Uh, so if you reject both instrumental harm and impartial beneficence, um, you tend to be uh, somewhere in the Kantian ethics side of things. Uh, if you endorse both of them, uh, you tend to be more in the actitude side of things. But then, as, as I just said, uh, well, in the ordinary fault, these two things have no relation. When you get to professional philosophers, they are very tightly linked. You, you either tend to go all the way uh, in one direction, all the way in the other direction, maybe uh, in the middle on both, uh, but they don't really come apart very much. Here's a bit of speculative data. Uh, I'm beginning to move to the more speculative part of the talk. Um, so if you divide the kind of results we have in these uh, thousand people, uh, and you ask how many, so, so the, the, the scale when you add it all together, um, 
you get a rank from uh, a score from between one to seven. So seven is the most utilitarian but one is the least utilitarian one. Uh, so if you kind of plot how many people were between five and seven, so how many were high on both of these things broadly, uh, and, and you might say lean quite strongly in a full utilitarian direction. Uh, I don't remember the figure, but it's, um, it's about 4% of, of these thousand uh, and as you can see, a huge number covered the whole rest of the range. So a very, very tiny group of people in the ordinary population have strong overall utilitarian leanings. Uh, I mean, five is already not that high, so it's, it's just above the middle. Um, if I look at this, so, so if utilitarians were uh, here about five or six or five and a half, uh, this is rule utilitarian. You kind of started to move um, uh, towards a more expansive kind of consequential when you get closer to four. Uh, so really a tiny minority of people in the ordinary population have properly utilitarian tendencies. One thing that's kind of interesting, because this is, where the spec, this, this is not speculative, just a report description. What kind of gets potentially interesting is, uh, I don't know if how many of you know of this survey that Borgette and his name right, and David Chalmers did a couple of years ago with uh, quite, I think it was uh, about 900 professional philosophers participated. Not all of them were in ethics or philosophers of all kinds. And they asked them all kinds of questions, including the degree to which they endorse consequentialism. Uh, now, so consequentialism is a, is a much broader view than utilitarianism, so, uh, so roughly includes stuff around four on our scale, maybe. Uh, and they had something like 7%, I think. You can look it up if you're interested. I don't remember off the top of my head. Uh, so if you kind of correct for that and think of how many of these are proper utilitarians, you probably get something quite close to the result we had in the general population. Um, so when you move from the uh, <coughs> ordinary population to the professional population, looks like there's no interesting increase in the number of utilitarians. It may, again, this is very speculative. Uh, the people who end up endorsing utilitarian views in academia may come already uh, pre-equipped psychologically to endorse that view. But Russian reflection and argument and the kind of stuff that Cedric uh, tells us about doesn't seem to nudge too many people farther in that direction, uh, which may or may not be disturbing to utilitarians. But is speculative but suggestive uh, kind of result. Then I'll start to wrap up and just kind of um, talk a little bit about the implications of what I've said. Uh, said these are not some kind of super robust final empirical data that we can just treat as fact. I don't said, want to do what Green has done on the basis of one imaging study thought that it tell us that he will solve all the problems of ethics. So uh, this is my claim that I'm going to be a lot more tentative anyway, but again, should kind of qualify them uh, and not overstate them. But I think that what it's worth thinking about the, the possible implications of, of some of these findings. Uh, so going back from uh, moral psychology to ethics. So one thing that's kind of emerging is that um, things that seem to go together in the thinking of moral philosophers are actually psychologically distinct when you go to ordinary thoughts. Um, and 
to some extent, I don't want to overstate it, there may even be some tension. Uh, so these are largely independent things psychologically that actually, actually have a slight correlation. Uh, but they're also inversely related to a lot of things, including some pretty basic psychological stuff like empathic concern. So if you're high on empathic concern, as I said, you're going to lean in this direction, but not like this stuff. If you're low empathic concern, you're going to like this stuff, but uh, not be terribly concerned about this state. So one thing that psychologically may push you in one direction, uh, actually push you in another direction. Even though in the philosophical context, these things go neatly together, um, so we shouldn't assume that they do so in, at, uh, kind of going out or to order and fall. Um, this may have implications to what utilitarians do. Um, so when they try to reach out to people to be more effective altruists, uh, maybe highlighting things to do with infanticide and uh, bestiality or whatever may be counterproductive. So, uh, either you're dealing with a different kind of bit of the population or maybe even putting off the kind of people who are actually going to be most likely to uh, endorse the kind of more impartial beneficent side of utilitarianism, which you might think is more important. So some of Peter Singer's most, more controversial views may actually be uh, things he shouldn't be emphasizing as much uh, or drawing attention to. It may be counterproductive. Um, actually, one of my colleagues at the Hero Center did an, inter did an interview with Singer uh, very recently, um, and he actually claims uh, that he thinks that his more controversial stuff was gave him the the fame that allowed him to uh, promote some of his more impartial beneficent ideas. But that again, that's his view. I'm not sure it's entirely true. Uh, we don't know what would have been otherwise if he had uh, uh, kept a bit more quiet about some of his more controversial stuff. Um, Maybe more importantly, or more kind of fundamentally, there's um, a kind of usual picture within philosophy of you know, why some people are attracted to utilitarianism and what's kind of the sources of resistance to it. So the, the picture that we have all this intuition we saw, um, and the problem with utilitarianism on this view, or things make it harder to endorse, is that it has this uh, great impartiality, it requires this great impartiality that alienates us from our deepest personal attachment and causes to reject all kinds of intuitions. Uh, but at least it's suggested by what I've just described that there may also be some internal tension, psychologically, I don't mean conceptually necessarily, uh, within utilitarianism between the kind of thing that pushes you to endorse, uh, you might say it's caring, impartial, what we call a positive side of it, and it's more kind of tough-headed negative side, maybe pushing in opposite directions. Uh, and that could be a another source of resistance to the view beyond the kind of uh, traditional story. Um, I said in the beginning that it's kind of strange to think that as Green and very many people in this field uh, seem to think, or actually can say that they do think that we can describe kind of the building blocks of human moral psychology in terms like utilitarian decision making. It's kind of a strange idea because in utilitarianism uh, fairly recent ethical view, a um, couple of hundred years old, came up in the English-speaking world, incredibly culturally specific, never uh, spread very far beyond a small minority, in many ways very influential uh, at the same time. It's kind of strange to think that you know, if you pick someone from the Sahara, 
some kind of bit of the brain that can be described as due to the charm decision making. Um, so, so I think that kind of thing is misguided. Um, but I think some of the stuff we I just reported, you can speculate. It's it's not something I don't want to overemphasize uh, because it's not direct <coughs> evidence. But we can speculate about the psychological sources of victim charmism uh, and, and think about a bit about what uh, what they might mean. So that's the kind of story that utilitarian attempt to tell um, this thing called common sense morality, as on Peter Singer's view, it's based on you know, all these unreliable intuition and gut reaction, all these historical and religious influences that bias us in all kinds of ways, um, kind of evolutionary influences. And that's a kind of shared starting point we all have. And then some of us who are the utilitarians are able to use the reason and rational reflection to reject those biased kind of stuff and get to this more rational kind of thing. So yeah, some recent paper with the Lazarus Braddock and Singer that kind of tell the story about impartial morality, but they have utilitarianism in mind as well. Um, and the green story kind of fit that very neatly. Um, this emotional stuff, we used to say this comes from evolution, now he's kind of a bit more cautious about that. You know, these crude gut reactions with our deontology and Utilitarianism is this kind of view we get by exercising our more advanced rational capacity, the kind of bits of the brain that are more evolved, uh, blah, blah, blah. So that kind of fits the traditional uh, utilitarian story very nicely. But the kind of picture that's kind of emerging, as I said, emerging, uh, I'm saying that tentatively from, from what I've just reviewed, tells a kind of more complicated story uh, where there are multiple causal sources where you're to the trial view, you, you may get her by being more tough-headed, more kind of unemotional and kind of cold and calculating, or you might get her because you're more caring than other people, uh, and this will maybe lead you in different directions. As I said, maybe uh, many utilitarians are really kind of, kind of uh, psychological outliers uh, that already kind of dispose quite unusually in that direction. Uh, so that's a quite complicated way to get her, and the way we explain the kind of ordinary psychological sources of utilitarianism is not by looking at this thing called utilitarian judgment and what's going on in the brain when you make it, but about something quite a bit fuzzier and broader, so uh, general differences in moral dispositions and their psychological correlates. Uh, and people can be free theoretically, they can be proto-utilitarians, not in a single dimension, but in different dimensions and in, 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 in different respects and the green. Um, and as I just said, it's not so much that um, we all share this set of kind of common sense intuitions and some of us overcome them using reason, but there's actually quite a diversity of psychological dispositions in the ordinary population and, uh, and different with different people with different effective dispositions and intuition will arrive or tend to arrive at different worldviews. It's not that uh, Peter Singer and everyone has exactly the same intuition, but that people who are drawn to this more utilitarian direction, all of them are in some way predisposed to that. It's not that we are all starting with the same uh, 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 psychological or intuitive starting point. Um, I could stop here, or should I kind of, this is the last slide, I could say something even more speculative. Okay, I'll just say that very quickly. Uh, sorry to speak for so long. Uh, so this really is very speculative stuff, but well, one is something I've already highlighted that's coming out from this last study, that there's possibility that utilitarianism uh, 
kind of faces pretty formidable psychological obstacles to any kind of wide acceptance because the kind of people actually involved it are all the psychological outliers. Uh, it's not as if there's some argumentative route that takes people in some great distance towards the general time view. It's more that people who are quite unusual in the ordinary population end up endorsing these utilitarian views. Uh, the kind of prospects of a larger scale acceptance of the view uh, might be fairly deep, certainly highly psychologically constrained. Now the question um, is whether the fact that within philosophy these two things, impartial beneficence and instrumental harm, go so uh, tightly together uh, is really reflecting some deep normative or conceptual connection, whether it's in part a contingent or uh, uh, maybe historical or sociological uh, accident. So, um, utilitarianism emerged you know, a couple of hundred years ago, dominated discussion in more philosophy in the English-speaking world. Uh, in that view, both elements fit nicely together. Um, and that kind of pushed aside all sorts, of, all sorts of alternatives that might just endorse one side and not the other. So if somebody, a uh, student comes into uh, uh, philosophy and they kind of think, oh, it's okay to push the fat man, let's say, uh, in the Torah, that's a utilitarian view. And they kind of get around to accepting the impartial beneficent side and vice versa. They kind of say, oh, we should help these distant strangers. And are told that that's, well, you're a utilitarian. Um, they come around to endorsing the idea of instrumental harm. And uh, people are psychologically or socially kind of pushed to... Um, endorse both of these, as, as, as assume that both of these have to go together, but it's conceptually non-obvious. Um, and maybe the fact that they come apart in the ordinary population should make us at least reflect on the possibility that they can operate as independent uh, moral components that don't need to go together, may not have some very deep connection, uh, at least not a, a necessary uh, the final kind of thing is just this notion of common sense morality that a lot of people in ethical theory or world philosophy are often refer to, um, which is kind of treated, I think, as a kind of set of moral rules or common intuitions um, that you can accept or systematize or reject. Uh, I think this notion is actually requires quite a lot more reflection and investigation. Um, and one thing that kind of, I think came up, I hope, from what I just said, that it, it's not that there's this common, uh, outside of philosophy, there's a kind of common set of intuitions roughly uh, shared by people outside philosophy, uh, which generate something called a common sense morality, but there's a much messier set of disposition and quite a lot of variability within the ordinary population. So when we think about common sense morality, we need in some way to factor that in in ways that I'm not sure we have uh, fully figured out how to do, but I think that's one final point as well, some reflection. So, so that's it, that just you know, all the empirical stuff, uh, at least, uh, was not something I did in my own, so these are some of my collaborators that also deserve credit, uh, and that's it.